Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs chapter 4? As James mentioned, we've been going through this lengthy series called Life Matters. We spent four weeks talking about marriage matters, and now we're uh, coming to the last of four sessions on uh, family matters. Uh, next week, we're going to get into the last part of this called Money Matters, and really that's strategically planned for that section right before Christmas because I'm hoping to give you some biblical guidance before you get in trouble. <laughs> because frankly, uh, a lot of people do get, we find that counseling needs for uh, financial assistance and guidance really spikes in February, and we think there may be a correlation. But anyway, so uh, really trying to lay out some biblical foundations so that we can be wise with regards to our monies. But today we want to talk about a topic that is um, really challenging. It's probably one of the most challenging areas that parents have to deal with, and that's what I called it, raising kids in a digital world. It is a vastly different world to grow up in than most of us grew up in. And uh, would you stand with me as we begin by reading? I want to start reading in verse 10, Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 10, where Solomon is offering his guidance and advice to his son. He says, listen, my son, and accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. I guide you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go and guard it well, for it is your life. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. For they cannot sleep till they do evil. They are robbed of slumber till they make someone fall. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. My son, pay attention to what I say. I Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to a man's whole body. But above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Put away perversity from your mouth. Keep corrupt talk from your, far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Make level paths for your feet and take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. Let's pray. Father, I ask as we humble our hearts and our minds and submit them to your word that your Holy Spirit would make them living truths that would not just be in our minds, but would permeate down into the very depths of our soul. We are facing challenging times. God, I ask that you would grant us your wisdom to walk as those who walk in the light and not to know the confusing darkness that surrounds so many lives today. We pray for your grace in this Lord in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A few months before I was born, my dad met a stranger who was new to our small Tennessee town, the writer says. From the beginning, he said, dad was fascinated with this enchanting newcomer and 
soon invited him to live with us. The stranger was quickly accepted and was around to welcome me into the world a few months later. As I grew up, I never questioned his place in our family. Mom taught me to love the Word of God. Dad taught me to obey. But the stranger was our storyteller. He could weave the most fascinating tales, adventures, mysteries, and comedies were daily conversations. He could hold our whole family spellbound for hours each evening. He was like a friend to the whole family. He took Dad, Bill, and me to our first Major League Baseball game. He was always encouraging us to see the movies, and he even made arrangements to introduce us to uh, several movie stars. The stranger was an incessant talker. Dad didn't seem to mind, but sometimes Mom would quietly get up while the rest of us were enthralled with one of his stories of faraway places and go to her room to read her Bible and pray. I wonder now if she ever prayed that the stranger would leave. You see, my dad ruled our household with a certain moral conviction, but this stranger never felt any obligation to honor them. Profanity, for example, was not allowed in our house, not from us, from our friends or adults. Our longtime visitor, however, used occasional four-letter words that burned my ears and made dad squirm. To my knowledge, the stranger was never confronted. My dad was a teetotaler who didn't permit alcohol in his home, not even for cooking, but the stranger felt we needed exposure and enlightened us to other ways of life. He offered us a beer and other alcoholic beverages often. He made cigarettes look tasty, cigars manly, and pipes distinguished. He talked freely, much too freely, about sex. His comments were sometimes blatant and sometimes suggestive and generally embarrassing. I know now that my early concepts of the man-woman relationship were influenced by the stranger. As I look back, I believe it was the grace of God that the stranger did not influence us more. Time after time, he opposed the values of my parents, yet he was seldom rebuked and never asked to leave. More than 30 years have passed since the stranger moved in with the young family in Morningside Drive. But if I were to walk into my parents' den today, you would still see him sitting over in a corner waiting for someone to listen to him talk and watch him draw his pictures. His name? We all always called him TV. Of course... We would need to update this story because we no longer live in a world that is simply a TV world. We live in a world of digital media. We have not only TV, but we have TV on our smartphones. In fact, I was watching the election results on my iPhone in the Amsterdam airport as I was walking to my gate. And I thought, what a world! We have tablets, we have smart TVs, which mine doesn't, isn't that smart, but it says it is. It has literally put the world at our fingertips because the everything is on the internet and the internet is in everything. It's ubiquitous. But here's the problem. See, Solomon warned, he said that God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. In other words, what he's saying is that God created the universe the way it was supposed to be, 
but we screwed it up and we do that perpetually because whereas God seems to be able to take bad things and make good things out of them, mankind excels in just the opposite way. We can often take something that has great potential for good and end up corrupting it into something that can be really bad. Never before in human history has evil had more ready access to the hearts and the minds of people of all ages than the world in which you and I live in today. And the effect has been significant. For example, I, we have become a nation of addicts. We are addicted to things like TV. I mean, you can say that you're not, but the average American spends about five hours every day in front of the television. The TV is on, just passively on, for average of eight hours a day in at most homes. And what this translates into is an amazing waste of time. <laughs> I mean, there's 3,000 hours a year, 210,000 hours every, every year or every in a lifetime, which means that you spend about 24 years, about a third of your average lifetime, watching TV. Considering that time is the only unrenewable resource, you spend it once and it's gone, you would think that we would be so cautious in how we were allowing it to be expended. And yet, the average American will spend a third of his or her lifetime in front of a television set, or maybe a computer, or some other access. And it doesn't improve as we get older. You think it was. You think we get older and we get wiser, but the older we get, the more time we spend watching. Uh, the average child from 2 to 11 years of age will spend about 24 hours a week. That's about three hours a day in front of the TV. The average person 65 years and older will spend more than twice that amount of time, averaging about six hours a day sitting in front of a television set. I don't know what we're watching, but we're, we're doing that apparently. And if you add to this dynamic of the internet, you find that this begins to spread out. It's not like it's a different technology. It's really just the growth and the uh, spreading of a greater technology so that we find that young people today are best described as digital natives. You know <laughs> And to explain the progression, you have to understand that I learned the computer at work. And then my kids learned the computer at school. And then my youngest son learned computers because they were in his hands. And his children now are learning computers and are native to it in a broader sense, because to them, they're moving into the world of artificial intelligence with quantum computing and with uh, visual uh, uh, reality and robotics, so that as these things spread more widely in our life, we find that, that this becomes just integrated into the way things are. When I spent the night in Amsterdam, I checked into a hotel that didn't have staff, it just had a large screen, and I just simply punched in all the information. It, I printed off my own room key, and I went to my room and opened it up, and everything in the room was run off of an iPad. 
From the TV to the curtains to the shower to everything, I could sit there with the iPad and control everything. And I thought to myself, I really like this. If I could just get this all in a little chip on my right hand. <laughs> oh, we'll save that for after the first year. Anyway, but we have to understand that the average, the first, the average age for a child today to get a, get a smartphone is 10. The average child at the age of 10 is going to have their first iPhone. When my granddaughter was saying to her mom one time, Mom, everybody has, an, has a cell phone. And my daughter said, no, they don't. And I suddenly realized, yes, they do. <laughs> that 55% of them use tablets nonstop and regularly. 64% of kids access the internet on an ongoing basis. 50% of kids have their own social media account, usually something like Facebook, beginning at the age of 11. Which, by the way, they're not supposed to be on until they're 16. But many parents are letting their kids sign up and lie on the form saying, yes, I'm 16 years of age. In fact, 24% of children right now have access, private access to the internet from their bedrooms. So that the average adults, you and me, and I, I'll put myself in that category too, we spend about four hours a day just emailing, updating social media, and other forms of uh, internet-connected activity through our phones, on our computers, and so forth. Four hours a day. So the point is that this is something that has really become ubiquitous. It's all through the culture. It's everywhere around us. And I want to make that clear and emphasize it strongly because it's easy for us to not pick up on the fact that this has now become the strongest voice speaking into your children's lives. Not the schools, not you, but the internet and what's coming through it. Now, there are some basic problems in all of this. First of all, they, most experts saying it's leading to what they call academic retardation. Uh, a California Department of Education study said that excessive television viewers spend less effort on schoolwork, have poor reading skills, interact poorly with friends, and have fewer hobbies and activities. In fact, one of the biggest concerns right now is that most young people don't know how to talk to other people. They don't know how to socialize. It's all through Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or some other form of digital platform that they interact with. But to sit down and actually have a conversation is, is really out of, the, out of uh, their reach and out of their life experience. When we were in Russia, it was so clear that here you had, we were ministering to a lot of people who are frankly poor. The average Russian income right now is about $450 a month, and half of that they spend just acquiring food. So they're poor and they're struggling, and you don't see any kids with cell phones or tablets or any kind of technology, but it was amazing to me. I'd see these little kids who didn't seem to have any of this social awkwardness or anxiety. They would come up to somebody like me, a complete stranger, and talk and be friendly and engage. And then I thought about what happens with our generation. They have their face in front of a screen constantly. 
They're running into things because they're busy texting. And we can kind of laugh about it and say it's funny, but you have to understand it's not just what they're doing, it's what they're not doing. You see, by the time our children graduate from high school, they will have spent 22,000 hours in front of a tube or in front of a screen, but only 13,000 hours in school. Almost twice as much time will be spent interacting digitally than that they will actually spend in a classroom, which, by the way, are increasingly become digitized. So that when you go to the classroom more and more, the teachers are going to find themselves being replaced by robotic teachers with artificial intelligence. The scariest one right now for me is Airbus is developing robotic pilots. <laughs> yeah, you're telling me. <laughs> Mm. Ah. Well, but the whole thing is it's going on as, as uh, not only does it cause academic retardation, it causes what we call an intellectual stagnation. Neil Postman is a professor of communication arts and sciences at New York University, was interviewed in U.S. News World Report, and he was asked the question, is television a good or a bad influence on the way children learn? Listen to his response. He says, it's turning out to be a disastrous influence. Television appears to be shortening the attention span of the young as well as eroding to a considerable extent their linguistic powers, in other words, their ability to communicate, and their ability to handle mathematical symbolisms. And the reason is, as Yuri Bronfenbrenner, a research psychologist, said, was that the primary danger of television lies not so much in the behavior it produces as in the behavior it prevents. The talks, the games, the family festivities, the arguments through which much of ch the child's learning takes place and through which his character is formed, turning on the television set can turn off the process that transforms children into people. And I would say that same principle applies to most digital technology. Because we grow into people and adults by interacting with people. And not just when the interaction is positive, but also in our conflicts and how to resolve conflicts. And if you take that all away and everything becomes virtual and not actual, then when it comes to really dealing with the actual world, we begin to fall apart. So that what happens is it creates this distorted view of reality. In fact, the National Institute of Mental Health observed that most people, it said, who watch television dramas and other fictional shows as valid guides for dealing with actual life situations. In some, they said, people are influenced by the media in the way they dress, talk, interrelate, spend their money, define social problems, identify with prominent personalities, and in the kinds of ideological images they embrace. The problem is, as Kevin Prada observed, he said that the most disconcerting part is that in the end, media actually replaces God as the primary influence in our life. The primary influence. Media views the world without Christian coordinates. 
considers right and wrong in humanistic terms, never in terms of God's authority to set standards to reward and to punish. In the television world, divine providence and faith in God are simply aspects of some people's religion rather than the fundamental dynamics of human life. So I, I'm sorry if I'm being a little bit pedantic about all this and laying this on you kind of heavy, but I think that it's kind of a wake-up call for all of us to realize that there is this powerful shaping of our view of reality that's going on without us really kind of grasping how that's being shaped. I'll never forget sitting with my oldest son, Ben, one time watching a football game. And uh, this was several years ago, but as we're sitting there together watching this game, the, the uh, obligatory beer commercial came on. And this particular beer commercial featured four buxom blondes who were from Sweden. And, you know, they're running around and celebrating beer with guys who are all oogling all over them. And, you know, and when this commercial ended, I looked at my son and I said, what do you think they're trying to tell us? Do you think they're trying to convince us that if we drink their beer, beautiful babes like that will be hanging all over us? And he kind of chuckled a little bit. And then the commercial came on again. And I asked him this question. I said, what do you think it is they're trying to communicate to us? Are they trying to convince us that if we drink that beer, we'll have these beautiful babes hanging all over us? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It came on again. And I started, I said, do you think that maybe he says, okay, I get it. What was I doing? I was trying to get him to start thinking about the messages that were coming through the TV, not just simply absorbing them. You have to do that intentionally for yourself, but also for your children. Because I know there's some of you saying, that's it, Mildred. I'm going home. We're taking all the digital technology and we're having a bonfire. Come on, let's all join together in the parking lot this afternoon and we'll, burn, well, let's wait, wait till after the game. And then let's burn this, all this stuff and swear it off. Just one more game. That's all I need. I don't need any more. Just one more game. <laughs> okay, one more season. Well, one more champion. Well, the whole simple, the point, point is that the culture, the society, the economy, everything is linked to this thing. So that before long, if you call Uber, it's not going to be a guy. It's going to be an automated car that's going to respond and pick you up. And believe me, I need to get back from the airport. So the whole point is that we can't just disconnect and say, well, we're going to move it to the mountains of Montana with my son Ben and go off the grid. No, the reality is we're called to engage the culture. We are called to live our lives redemptively. So we have to find, not only recognize what's going around, but we need to actually, actually engage it, to recognize that there are powerful waves of messages that are coming our way 24-7. And are we prepared? Are we able to give a reason for our faith? Are we able to distinguish between the messages? Now, I know some of you are saying, boy, this is a weird time to be living because they never had to deal with this kind of stuff. Yes, they did. Someone was talking about how corrupt our culture is today. I explained to him, he said, do you ever have any idea what it was like when the Apostle Paul landed his ship in the, in the port of Sencria and began the walk from Sencria on the shore into the heart of the city of Corinth? A Corinth that was 
known for its 1,000 temple priestesses slash prostitutes who would wind their way down into the city by torchlight at night to invite men to worship Aphrodite through sexual encounter. And then they would collect the monies and take them back to the temple every night. That every form of vice was not forbidden or illegal, it was just, in fact, if you look at the ruins of any Roman city or Greek city, you'll find that in the very center of the city, in the center of business, what you find are not only the baths, but the prostitutes. The baths and the brothels are right there next to each other. This was a way of life. So that when Paul walked into these cities, he was being bombarded with those same kind of messages in living flesh, not just in living color. And that's why the Scriptures gives us a pathway and talks about setting your foot straight and knowing what the target is and moving it towards it because you're not going to be able to escape being surrounded by it. But there's one more dimension to this that I would be remiss not to touch on. And it's probably the one that is most concerning to me. What the growth of digital technology has done has exposed all of us to pornography. And pornography to not only in degree, but also in manner that goes beyond anything that I ever even imagined was possible. Today, 12% of the internet, 12% are pornographic sites. There's several millions of them on the web today. 25% of all engine searches are for pornography. A quarter of people who are logging on to the internet, a quarter of the time they log in, they're looking for pornography. 70% of men between the ages of 17 and 34 visit a porn site at least once a month. 17% of women do also. 90% of children between the ages of 8 and 16 have viewed pornography at least once. We are finding, even in our own ministries, Children as young as 10 years of age who are already heavy users of pornography. In fact, the largest consumers of pornography are boys between 12 and 17 years of age. And that's not by coincidence or accident. It's actually they are a targeted group because pornographers recognize that if they can get a child at 12 years of age to begin viewing pornography, they'll probably have them addicted for life. And that says nothing of the very twisted view that young boys grow up having of women, that they see them as objects, not persons. Or as C.S. Lewis said, that Eros sees only naked bodies where love sees naked personalities. And one of the aspects of the conflicts that we're finding in marriage today is that so many men have this very twisted view of what intimacy is all about and how to gain it that they are almost predatorial and carnivorous in their relationship with their wife. 
demanding that she be something like a Victoria's Secret model rather than being who she is. Creating a crisis with women in our culture of beauty as defined by the magazine cover. And the whole idea that beauty is within is almost considered to be kind of a cute joke, a quaintness, but really, seriously, she's got to be hot. What's even more troubling to me is that 38% of adults say that porn is morally acceptable. Almost 40% of the population says there's nothing wrong with it. In fact, some even suggest it's healthy. Well, the estimates are that uh, 50% of Americans are addicted to pornography on one level or another. And they come to that conclusion by saying, well, it's, it's the frequency with which you access the product. And 50% of Americans uh, have a, a regular uh, appointment with pornography. And you can do it through all sorts of mediums. Those who do it, I don't need to inform you, but some people are, are not aware that they can pull it down over their phones. I'll never forget the young lady who came to me after a service for prayer some time back, 14 years of age. Sitting there texting back with some guy and he, oh, I love you, you're beautiful. I would Send me a naked picture of yourself. So she did. And next day she found it had been distributed all over the school. Had to leave the community. Had to leave the community. And you just look at these kind of things, you say, okay, technology on one hand is this amazingly wonderful thing, but look what we've done with it. That God created us upright and we have taken it to such sick degrees. And if you're a parent, and you're not worried about what your kids are doing and what, the, what their searches are, if you're giving them carte blanche with technology, you are a fool. You need to know. You need to be nosy. You need to be setting up passwords. And it's not enough to say, well, we put this internet blocker because uh, they don't work all that well. No, you have to be monitoring all of that. You need to have your computer in a public space where everybody in the room knows what's going on. Not in bedrooms, not smartphones that they can walk around and access whatever they want. You need to be policing this. Because if you don't, as the prophet said, you're sowing to the wind and one day you're going to reap the whirlwind. And here I hear it over and over again. Ah, where did I go wrong? Where did they learn this kind of stuff? How did they get exposed to this kind of thing? And it's just because we are naive oftentimes and assume that they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't go there. Don't assume anything about anybody. Because especially with boys, what you've got to understand is two dynamics about the male species in general. This will be very informative to the ladies and this will be rocket science to the guys. Um, first of all, men are visually stimulated. I, I'm not saying that they 
want to be visually stimulated. They just see something and the juices start flowing. So I'm walking through uh, Moscow's Shermetyevo Airport and there's this massive sign of a Victoria's Secret model dressed in a, a, a very, very nice state of undress. And I'm looking at this, staring at that and thinking, wow, how angelic, she's got wings. <laughs> and, the, and this thought came to me in that moment, who's this for? Is this for a woman who's walking through there saying, oh, I've got to get some wings like that. I thought, this is for guys. This is, I, I didn't see any guys in there, at least that were dressed like guys, so I don't know. But I thought, this is not something that they're using to get, get women to purchase stuff. This is trying to draw men in. And you just understand, ladies, that your little boy sees pretty girls and he's attracted to them and he sees them in various states of undress. He's going to be even more interested if not attracted. It starts young. Spare them the exposure. Number two, what happens when uh, a man looks at that? Uh, one researcher referred to him as erototoxins. That it's, it's, it, it's that certain endorphins are released into the bloodstream faster than you can inject heroin in a vein. And you immediately have this state of euphoria. The, eye, the pupils widen. The mind becomes uplifted and everything is beautiful and rosy and fuzzy. And just like a drug addict, they will go back for more and more. And just like a drug addict, they can't stop, but they have to continually raise the addictive experience so that just like Ted Bundy said, it started with looking at a Playboy magazine that I found in my neighbor's garbage can to me going to more uh, abstract, bizarre, purient forms of sexual excitement. I always had to stimulate myself with something deeper and, and more abstract till eventually I found sexual pleasure in actually murdering my victims and then sexual assaulting them. And you and I sit there and say, how do you become a sociopathic serial killer like that? And the sad thing by his own confession, it just started little by little and always needing to raise the bar, need to increase the dosage, needing to make it more intense, more impactful until his whole life was addicted to it and there was all the boundaries had been passed. That's not going to happen to everybody, but you have to understand that Every time you engage in that, you're taking yourself deeper into that cycle. And you're creating muscle memory that's going to become more and more controlling of your life. So the question really is, I mean, how do we escape this stuff? Well, I have my four B's, four things we need to be. That we need to be honest with ourselves and with God. You know, when Solomon said here in this passage, he says, accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. There's, there's this acceptance of truth that's essential for us to make any progress. 
Because when John tells us in his first letter that we need to confess our sins so that God who is faithful and just can forgive us our sins and also can purify us from all of our sins. In other words, God says, if you confess it, not only will I remove the shame of your sin and guilt, but I will also heal you. But that has to begin with being honest. You see, it is such an embarrassing thing to be caught up in this stuff that most people don't talk to anybody about it. In fact, part of the difficulty researchers say in finding out the degree to which this is a problem in society is that most people are too ashamed to admit to anybody, even in a private survey, that somehow it might be traced back to them. And that's one of the ironies, <laughs> tragic ironies of pornography today. When I was growing up, if you wanted to see that kind of stuff, you had to pay to go into a theater or buy some, you know, some magazine or something. It was always in public. It wasn't something that you could hide. You had to be around other people in order to engage in it. Today, you can do it in the middle of the night by yourself without anybody else watching, without anybody else knowing. And that's why the very first thing is the way, the way you, you kill bacteria is you shine a light on it. You expose it. You, and, and, and part of that is exposing yourself. Paul says, I judge myself so that I will not be judged with the world that you begin by getting honest with yourself and honest with God and saying, God, this is a problem. Now, how do you know whether your viewing of pornography is a problem or not? Simple answer, you viewed it. You viewed it, it's a problem. I just did it that one time. Right, but it's a problem. And you need to be honest with that. You need to own it at that point. That's why Solomon said, don't leave the path ever. Because if you do, you're going to be going in the wrong direction. Now, does God forgive? Yes. Can God restore? Can God cleanse? He does, can do all those things. But until we stop giving ourselves permission to say a little is okay, we're setting ourselves up for a trip. We're going to fall. We need to be honest with God and with ourselves. But secondly, we need to be people who are teachable. When he says in verse 10, listen, my son, accept what I say. And again, in verse 20, he said, my son, pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are the life to those who find them and health to a man's whole body. You, you notice this, this Hebrew style of reiteration where they say the same thing over and over and over again in several different ways. It's designed for emphasis. It's designed for making a point. It's designed to catch our attention and keep us from losing our focus on what he's trying to say. And simply for me, being teachable means that instead of dedicating so much time to technology, that you dedicate time to the Bible. And I don't mean an app. I don't mean some uh, devotional website that sends you an inspirational verse for the day. I, I don't even mean reading the daily bread. I mean you open the Bible and you read it in a very novel way, like a book, cover to cover. And I'm very serious about this because it's making a decision that I'm going to dedicate a significant amount of time personally 
Anything less than an hour a day reading your Bible is short-selling yourself. You're cutting yourself off from basic nutrition. And I know some of you are saying, where am I going to find an hour in my day? I know your Facebook account may not be up to date and you may not get to all of your emails. You may have to stay up a little later or get up a little earlier. But it's that important. I need God teaching me from His Word every day. Because as David said in Psalm 119, verse 9, he says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed to thy word. How do, it's that cleansing of God's word that makes a change. And it may not automatically change who you are at the first time you read a chapter in the Bible. But let me tell you, as you begin to make it a regular part of your life that you're reading the word of God, you will find that things will start changing, that you'll start seeing things differently. Now, for me, I had a decided advantage. The first five years I was a Christian, the Bible is the only book I read. I didn't watch TV. I didn't listen to radio. I didn't see a movie. All I did was read the Bible for five straight years. Now, you may wonder, how did I find myself in that strange circumstance? I was living in a commune. I don't recommend it. <laughs> but I do recommend the Bible part. There just wasn't anything else to do except read the Bible, talk about the Bible, and talk to other people who didn't know Jesus. I mean, and you just absorb it. And I found that the Bible is an eminently readable book. I thought I was really, you know, accomplishing a great deal because I read the Bible, the New Testament, six times in the first six weeks that I was a believer. And then I was talking to another pastor, Misha Andanoff, who we know, who planted our church in Sochi. And he was saying, you know, the day I got saved, I went home and I read the entire New Testament that night. Now, the point is, it's very readable. But it's also amazingly absorbative in the heart and the mind and the soul that has Jesus living inside of it. That when Jesus lives in you, the Word of God is something that starts absorbing into you. And I am convinced that as I see more and more disturbing, aberrant expressions of Christianity in the world today, it's because these people don't know God's Word. And on closer inspection, I found that's exactly the case. They don't read the Word. But thirdly, you have to be aware. And by that I mean you need to know what you can and can't do. When he says in verse 14, do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. For the way of the wicked is like deep darkness and they do not know what makes them stumble. You know, there are some things that just need to be out of bounds for you. There are some of you who this is such an issue that your husband or your wife should be the only one who knows the password to open up your computer that you can't be trusted with even that password. There are some of you who, for this is such an issue, you should never have a smartphone. You should only be allowed to have a rotary dial with a long cord. <laughs> trying to lighten it up here a little bit. But I mean, seriously, you understand. This is that part of that humility of admitting, this is not something I, at least at this point in my life, can deal with. 
All things, everything is allowable, but not everything is profitable. Everything is permissible, but not everything edifies. And what that may be for you may not be for someone else. Maybe somebody else can. You can't. And you have to own that and humble yourself to that. Because if you're married, part of the honesty is to admit to your spouse, this is an issue for me. And work together to find a solution. That's why I say, fourthly, you need to be accountable. When he says in verse 23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Put away perversity from your mouth. Keep corrupt talk from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Make level paths for your feet and take only ways that are firm. And do not swerve to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. That you need that accountability in your life. And again, as I said, if you're married, that probably should be your spouse to begin with. But it's also finding people who are mature in Christ and safe that you can have that honest conversation. Something I've always kind of struggled with is, you, you, you know, we have these men's conferences and we'll talk about this issue and saying, men, you need to come up here and pray that we can get victory over this. And all these guys walk up there. And I, the only thing that bothers me is you have like half the guys are up in front waiting for prayer and the other half are sitting in their seats. And I'm thinking, no, it's only true if they all come. It's only true if they all come. And you see, there's that danger. I mean, it's like the uh, uh, three pastors decided that they were going to get together for a regular fellowship to edify and encourage each other. And, and uh, their first meeting, uh, one of the guys said, well, I guess I'll start up. He said, gentlemen, I says, I have to admit to you that I have a terrible lust problem. And I just uh, want your prayer that God would give me victory over that. And the other two went, okay, yeah, we'll pray for that. And then the second guy opened up and hearing the transparency of the first, he said, you know, I have a struggle too. I mean, I, I struggle with greed, and it's, I'm tempted to steal money from my church, and, and I just really want you guys, guys to pray for me, and would you do that? And they said, oh, yeah, we'll pray for you. And then they came to the third one, and he just sat there, silent. And after an awkward moment, they turned to him and said, do you have anything that you would like us to pray for? And he said, well, yeah, there is. I have a terrible struggle with gossip. <laughs> There's no victory in displaying somebody else's shame. There's no love in that. But the same thing is that we need to humble ourselves enough to say, I need somebody to pray with me. I need somebody to help me with this. Somebody to hold me accountable. Somebody to be regularly asking me, how is that going? How is that battle progressing? Are, are you still dealing with that? Have you struggled? Somebody made a comment one time that really struck me. He says, why is it that alcoholic anonymous have so much higher success rate in helping alcoholics quit drinking than the church does? And the answer was really simple. Honesty. Honesty. You begin by the meaning by saying, I'm John Doe and I'm an alcoholic. You see, sometimes what's missing in holiness is Honesty. Honesty is the, is the first path to holiness. Honest to ourselves, honest to God, honest to those people who are around us and matter. 
And it's that honesty that begins to open the pathways to holiness. And it's humility that opens the pathway to wisdom. There are all sorts of type people trying to be holy, but they, you're not, they're never going to be honest with you about what they struggle with. And there's all sorts of people who want to be wise, but there's no humility. They're very proud of what they know. No, honesty and humility are the secrets to holiness and wisdom. And that's as counterintuitive as anything can possibly be. But that's the way it is. The way up is always the way down. The first will always be the last. The servant will always be the master of all. That's, that's the oxymoronic dynamic of the, of, the, of the church of God. So, my, my prayer this morning and my, my struggle in, in this whole issue and the conversation is that for many of you, it's almost like uh, pulling a scab off a wound. But for many of you, it's, it's not just a scab of, an, of a past wound. It's a scab that has grown over a deep infection and it needs to be ripped off and it needs to be cleansed and it needs to be healed. And that's what God does. If you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, He promises that He'll lift you up, that He'll own it, that God will cleanse it and He'll heal it and make it whole again. So I do not say this to, to uh, hopefully leave you with all sorts of uh, angst and, and conflict and guilt and shame. I say this because that's how healing comes. And it's a sin. It is not a sin that's, you know, some people say, oh, I never get drawn into that pornography. I'm just a thief. Thank God I'm just greedy. You know, no, it's sin. But we have to understand that sexual immorality is rampant within the Christian, at least the professing Christian community today. It's rampant. It's excused. It's looked over. And a lot of it, from what they're saying, is being fomented by pornography, creating appetites that can never be satisfied for longer than the millisecond it takes the endorphins to hit your blood and then just like that, dissipate and cry out for another hit. Father, I pray for your grace to be poured out upon these men and women. This is such a, this is not a fun topic for me to talk about. I'm sure it's not very much fun for them to listen to. But God, we need to face the truth. And Lord, in, in light of your truth, Lord, we humble ourselves in your sight and we say, Father, forgive. Father, deliver and heal and purify. Lord, I pray for those men or women who are struggling with this right now that you would just bring into their life people with whom they can humbly and honestly say, would you pray for me and pray with me? Would you be someone I can talk to, someone I can allow to hold me accountable and that when I'm struggling with this, I can talk to you. When I've failed, I can come and pray with you. Lord, we know that Satan loves the darkness and he loves to keep our sins dark and hidden because then he can exploit us with our own guilt and our own shame. 
Lord, we pray that the light of your truth would have full fare, Lord, would just shine brightly on our lives. That there would be no secret hidden places, Lord, but that we could live free in the truth we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we continue for a few more moments uh, in worship and in prayer, uh, maybe more importantly, a, a brief time in, of reflection, that we would, you know, pray along with David in Psalm 139 when he said, search me, O God, and know my heart, and let me see if there's any wicked way inside of me. Uh, my experience is every time I pray that prayer, um, he answers it. The prayer where I ask him for a new Ferrari never gets answered. But I say, show me wickedness, and right there, it's, he shows me, he says, you're wicked, you want a Ferrari. But, uh, but seriously, it's so important for us to be honest with God, to just be naked in his presence and not ashamed. That we can know the power of his grace and his cleansing. It's when we humble ourselves in that honesty, that's where we become wise men and women. We become people are holy in, in a biblical sense, not a religious sense, but we become holy in a, in a biblical sense. And it has a really transforming effect upon your life. What he said in Proverbs is, this is the path of life and your years will be many and blessed if you walk in them. So I encourage you to come up. If you're a believer, partake of the elements of communion, this sacrificial elements of Christ's body and blood that is always a reminder that we were bought with a price, that we are no longer our own. We belong to him. We are his purchased possession. But before you do that, I would just urge you to begin by putting out before him in faith whatever it is that he needs to lift from you to honestly confess whatever needs to be confessed and then partake of the healing gift of the Lord's table. If you need prayer, myself, others in the wings here will be here available for prayer um, and not necessarily just about these issues. Maybe you just need prayer for healing or whatever thing is going on in your life. We're just available here to do that. So come. <laughs>